0: Grace and peace to you this day in the hope of our surprising God, and welcome to worship at Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church. Whether you are with us in the pews or are connected on our live stream, whether you are a long time member or a first time visitor or somewhere in between, we are glad that you are here. As we prepare for worship, I turn your attention to several announcements. Beginning this Thursday, July 7th, and continuing every Thursday through August 4th at 7 p.m., you are invited to gather here on the BMPC campus for our, our Summer Carillon Concert Series. Park your car in the sanctuary parking lot or bring a picnic on the lawn and listen to some of the most talented Carilloners from Europe and across the Philadelphia area. This Friday, July 8th at 7 p.m., all are welcome to join with Children and Family Ministries on the front lawn for our family movie night, where we will be featuring the film Sing 2, the long-celebrated franchise story of an optimistic koala bear who holds a singing competition in order to raise money for his nearly bankrupt theater. Friends, you do not want to miss this. We are once again asking for your recommendations for church officers. Nominations for the Office of Elder, Deacon, and Trustee can be found online or by typing in the link found in your bulletin announcement. And finally, a reminder that our church staff offices have temporarily relocated for the summer during our office suite renewal. The reception desk will be located in the atrium and our volunteer receptionist will help you connect with where staff are located across the campus. And now we lay the events of the days ahead aside as we prepare to worship the living God. Please rise as you are able as we join together in our call to worship. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Come into God's presence with singing. Enter these courts with praise. Know that the Lord is good. Know that God's love endures forever. God's faithfulness is to all generations. Let us worship the one who formed us and calls us by name. You may be seated. Because we are not sinless, and because we carry the pain and madness and apathy of the world within us, let us confess our sin to God and to one another as we join together in our prayer of confession. Loving God, You call us to follow, but we are slow to respond. Forgive us for the times when we are more apathetic than active, more isolated than involved, more callous than compassionate, more legalistic than loving. Teach us a better way. Set us free from a past we cannot change and grant us grace to follow where you lead. Amen. Peace. Peace is what we receive from God when we know that the brokenness of the world is not the final word. When we know that in God's good and gracious arms we rest secure, even when life's storms seem to be raging. Friends, hear this good news. In the sure and certain hope of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, We are forgiven. Hold fast to this truth and be at peace.
1: we have the opportunity to gather in prayer. As many of you know, members of our choir are in the Middle East right now. They are singing with communities, and they are sharing God's love in new places. And as I think about the children in our own church who are at camp and who are on vacation and on adventures, I'm also reminded that just a few nights ago, our choir sang with children in Bethlehem and Hebron and thought it would be appropriate for us to lift up children in all places today in prayer. Will you please pray with me? Dear God, for those who are traveling, give them mercy. For those who are worried or afraid, give them peace. For those who are trying to grow and learn the next thing, give them courage. For those who are in need of rest, give them space. God, we pray for the children that we know, whose names are etched in our hearts and on our hands, the ones we see each day. We pray for children we do not yet know, for communities still being formed. We pray for children who are in places of danger. We pray for children who have to grow up too soon. And we pray that we, your church, might be a safe place for each one, that we would work to keep each one you have formed safe and growing in this world, oh God. I pray that you would be with our choir while they are apart and as they return, and with all of those with whom they share the joy of music with. I ask all this in Jesus' name, and together we say, amen.
0: Let us again look to God together in prayer. Holy One, quiet us. Quiet us that we might hear you in these ancient words of splendor and surprise. And in the stillness, shine your light upon our lives that we might see the way to follow you in faithfulness. Amen. A reading from the Psalter. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you brought me up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those gone down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you had established me as a strong mountain, You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me, O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever.
1: Our second reading from Second Kings, listen to the word of the Lord. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man and in high favor with his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man, though a mighty warrior, suffered from leprosy. Now, the Armenians, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go. Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. He went, Naaman went, and taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of garments, Naaman brought the letter to the king of Israel. It read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent my servant Naaman, and you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, Elisha the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king, Why have you done this? let Naaman come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and he would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be made clean? He turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, If the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more than when he said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down immersed himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young man, and he was clean. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This past week, we all had to pack up our offices. Now if you know anything about my office, it's always just a little bit messy, you might say. It's filled with a lot of things that had to be sorted through. Leftover craft projects, books, more books, a few more books past that. And I was ready to go through all of my paperwork and get ready for this move, and suddenly I got caught up on one task. Right behind my computer on the wall was this collection of post-it notes. You may not know this, but every time I get a prayer request or I hear about something that's happening in someone's life, I add a post-it note to my wall. It's usually just a name or a note or a date. Just something so I can keep that person in my prayers. So that way when I look up from my computer, from my emails or from my work that I think is important, I can see the work that actually is. It's always kept me grounded. Among all of those names and all of those prayer requests, there are little tiny snippets of prayers that I like to come back to. And as I was taking down those post-it notes, afraid to lose even one, I kept finding all of these prayers that have guided me over the years—quotes and things. And there was one prayer that was hidden under a few layers of bright post-it notes that had almost been lost to the ages—it was one I must have hung up early in my tenure. It was a prayer that was written in honor of Oscar Romero and his incredible legacy in El Salvador, in memory of him after his death. And it begins with these words. It says, it helps now and then to step back and take the long view. Kingdom is not beyond our efforts, but it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says it all. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives include everything. As I was reading through that prayer, looking at my stack of post-it notes, I got a little frustrated. After all, don't we want to see the kingdom a little bit faster? I have a timeline in my mind as to when things should happen, how fast healing should occur, what pain should be taken away. I have a good idea in the back of my mind exactly how God should be working, and it's probably pretty similar to Naaman's idea. The right proclamation, a few hand waves, and things are taken care of. As I was reading through that prayer, it caught me. It caught me how much we want to be able to balance equations and check off boxes, to build a kingdom that's within our control. It gets a little frustrating, doesn't it? I don't know if anyone else shares this tendency, but I know I get caught with these unintended expectations when I think I know what should happen. It's the moment when you arrive at a theater ready for a particular kind of movie, or when you pull up to that attraction that you've been waiting to see your entire life, and you open your eyes and see it for the first time in real time. It's that second after you've been handed the gift and before you've torn the gift paper away when we're anticipating and dreaming and imagining what will be different, what we can expect. Now, we've also all been on the other side of those unintended expectations. When you go above and beyond for someone and they are swept off their feet and amazed. Or when you've gone above and beyond and someone looks at you and shakes their head because you still didn't meet the mark. When someone brings a vision that simply can't be met, and you can see the disappointment, the weight on their shoulders, there's a strange rub between what is and what I imagined. It can be painful or even heartbreaking. We all learn to move past it, but there's a kind of grief that lingers, an imagined memory that you always compare reality to. And as you move forward, there's, there's a danger, a tacit fear, a jaded nihilism, an unspoken bitterness that can creep from the back of your mind and start speaking into the present. Remember last time when it didn't work out? Remember that other time when... It's the voice that tells you that what you see unfolding in front of you is not enough, it's not big enough, it's not good enough, it's not impressive enough, that something is missing. And how often that voice can find power in our lives. How it even finds some power here in the second book of the Kings, in the fifth chapter. I know that once we move into the first and seconds of Hebrew scripture, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, it can be hard to place all the individual stories. It's a long timeline. But they can start to even run together a little bit. You have apostate kings and unruly prophets, there's a pattern to be found in each of those books. But just to place this particular story in context, here's the one minute synopsis things have not been great in the land. King David's throne was divided by his grandson into two distinct kingdoms, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Neither one is thriving. Both live with a constant threat of invasion and all the other challenges of the ancient world, plagues and famine and all of that stuff. The northern kingdom, Israel, where the story takes place, is ruled by a lackluster king, probably Joram. And the chief enemy of the northern kingdom is their neighbor, Aram. The Arameans, with their chariots and bows, boasted stronger armies and a design to have an empire. Israel was an easy target, it seems. And we even know from our scripture passage that God, the, the God of Israel, was in fact giving them victory. So things are not good in the land. Famines are punctuated with war, both civil and foreign. And we have the prophet of the day, Elisha. Much like his mentor Elijah, he was never known for being particularly subtle or politically savvy. He was a prickly sort. But he was known far and wide as a prophet filled with power. He could do the extraordinary raise the dead, feed the hungry, purify the poisoned. He even had a cool trick with an axe head, but that's a different chapter. You'll have to find that this morning. It's a great setup. The first few lines of the story fill us with expectations. The most powerful man in the most powerful army is facing the one thing he can't fight, disease. You can almost imagine the trailer. The great general is sick. And while Hebrew has a number of words describing every kind of sheep you can imagine, they only have one word for skin disease, leprosy. So we don't actually know what the general was suffering from. But it was bad enough to know that he was suffering and that his entire household knew about it, that the king knew about it. It's here where our expectations start to fall apart. Because it's here that a girl... A captive, a child who has been taken and enslaved, hears about the ailment and with the boldness of youth, says, I know the answer, the prophet in Samaria. She is not the person who should have had the answer to Naaman's problems. She is not the person anyone should have listened to. Everything is stacked against her. Naaman has court doctors at his disposals, magicians, priests, diplomats, couriers. The girl serving his wife is not where he should be getting information from. And yet a conversation between two women becomes the origin of Naaman's salvation. Whether it was hubristic pride in her hometown healer or a homesick memory shared at a vulnerable moment, or even compassionate concern for the suffering of someone else, we will never know. But something made the girl speak, and something made Naaman's wife listen, made Naaman's wife tell her husband, who then told the king. We're only five verses into this story, and on the word of a child, a slave, a foreigner, the king of Aram sends his general, into enemy territory with nothing but a letter and a fortune. Talk about breaking down some expectations. Biblical scholars are quick to point out that the king of Aram wins on either account. If his favored general goes to Israel and is treated, that's great. His general comes back. If he isn't, if he's killed or leaves unhealed, then the king has grounds for an invasion. When, when? But what about Naaman? What does Naaman risk as he heads out into enemy territory, crossing over the very lands he had just raided, carrying a f- fortune and a disease, a disease that could eventually mean banishment or exile, but he takes all those things and treks into the unknown. When the king of Israel receives the diplomatic correspondence, he knows politics are at play, he knows about Elisha. He knows the prophet is pretty good, but he also knows he's in a no win situation because he's either going to send back a healed general who will then come and invade his territory, or he doesn't. And that's grounds for you see the challenge. And so while the king is ripping his clothes, trying to find out how to move forward, here comes Elisha, the prophet, to the rescue. Now we know something good is going to happen. Elisha the prophet calls Naaman the general to come and be healed and know that there is a prophet in the land of Israel. So Naaman arrives, invited, and what happens? Nothing. Elisha doesn't even wave from the window. Elisha sends a servant out to give the news to go wash in the Jordan River. When the choir returns next week, we might see some good pictures of the Jordan, but as Naaman declares, it's no parfar or abena. It's just a river, and it's offensive to Naaman. He's come all this way with all this treasure, and he knows what Elisha needs to do. Call upon the name of God, grab his hand around, you know, in that prophetic gesture, and then he'll be healed. That's how you heal this disease. He knows, and he knows so clearly what should happen that he's willing to pack up his bags and go home because Elisha tells him something different. I can imagine that the Hebrew scripture leaves out some of the more choice remarks that Naaman made in that moment, but we can all imagine the rage that filled him. He's ready to leave, walk away from the possibility of wholeness because it didn't look like what he expected. He's trusted this far, but the last step feels like too much. Does that feel a little close to home? Does that sound familiar? Can you see his hands raised, his lips pursed, saying, I am done? You ever seen your own reflection in that same way? Can't do this anymore. I'm walking out." When you're willing to walk away from something because it's not what you thought it would be. It's easy when you've read to verse 14 to shake your head at Naaman's lack of faith. It's all going to work out okay. When you're six months removed from a situation or have the benefit of hindsight, we can sigh at someone's overreaction. But in that incredible moment, when you feel like the one thing you've been looking for is lost, who isn't tempted to walk away? Naaman was expecting something big, but it wasn't. It was just bathing in the Jordan. No incantation, no magic spell, no prophetic utterance. It's just a bath in a nearby river. That was it. I get caught when I look out on a world that seems to be turning in a million different directions, a thousand different worries and fears that can keep us up late into the night, 10,000 different issues that could swamp our attention, global, local, national, personal, you name it. I can see the weight on people's shoulders, the hurts we're carrying, the question, can it get better? Is it worth those last few steps? I can see Naaman's wisdom. If I have enough gold and silver, if I find the right prophet, if I get the right words, then I can fix this mess and go back to what I'm supposed to be doing. I can feel Naaman's frustration over the centuries, and I share his desire to throw my hands in the air and say, enough, I am done. But the story calls me back. It's a counter to all the voices in my head that say, impossible, and offers a gentle question, why not? I don't think there's a simple solution to the problems of our age, in the same way that Naaman's return to Aram doesn't mean that Israel was no longer in danger, that he wouldn't have to return to a battlefield, that the girl would no longer be a captive. The challenges of the day don't just disappear, but I do know that when we walk away, when we dismiss what we have not yet seen, we miss the opportunity for transformation, the chance to be healed, to repair one small part of the story. We may tell this story and focus on Naaman and Elisha, but the reality is that it's an ensemble piece. All of the characters are critical in this story. But the ones I love the most are Naaman's companions at the end. The ones who risk it and say, Why not? If you had given you the impossible, you would have done it. Why not? Try it. Take those last few steps. Why not wade into the Jordan? After all, this is a miracle that starts with a child's voice and a cherished memory. It's built through the relationship between a husband and a wife. It's fleshed out in the politics of the day, but it isn't stopped by them. It names a foreigner as a man of integrity and faith and an aloof prophet as a healer. It's finished in the imagination of friends and a word of hope. That's what makes the miracle possible, the slow work of God and the people that surround him. That's how Naaman was healed. Can we do any less? The story doesn't say that it wasn't hard, that the path between Damascus and Jordan isn't long, but it does offer hope that we might be and hear the voices that encourage us in a new direction, that offer hope when all else seems lost. Now, I know that we won't make it to the Jordan, and as I think through all of those prayer requests, some of them resolved in ways I never would have imagined, some in ways that bring tears to my eyes today. Some are still so tenuous that I still hold those pieces of paper and they made it over to my temporary office for the short term. I know that it's not easy, but it's those last steps that we have to take together because turning away isn't possible, isn't the right option either. That prayer ends with these words saying this is what it means. This is what we're called to be about. We're called to plant seeds that will one day grow and water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capacities. We cannot do everything, and there is some liberation in realizing that. But this enables us to do something, and to do it well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between a master builder and the worker, We are the workers, not the master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. Friends, may those last steps be filled with the voices of friends who will encourage you. And may the waters be cool and wash away all of the hurts. And may you find the strength to call another to healing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you.
2: Having heard the word of God read and proclaimed, let us remain standing and together affirm our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. As we prepare to bring our concerns and joys before God this morning, we are especially mindful of the family of Betty Alexander who passed away earlier this morning. We hold her family in our prayers, especially her daughter Chris Lipson and her husband Jeff. Amidst our grief, we rest in the assurance found in the words of the Apostle Paul that nothing in life or in death can separate us from God. Let us pray. God of word and life, speak to us this morning. We have assembled once more in this sanctuary, this place of sanctuary, to rest in your refuge. You are a God of kindness and welcome, so bid us in right now. Another week has passed and in it we've met surprises, delights, and everything in between. We ask your peace over all things that bring us anxiety. We ask your multiplication over all things that bring us joy. Come close, gracious God, and hear the prayers that accompany us this day. God of hope and healing, like Naaman, many of us know the weight of long-term illness. The numerous doctors visits, the extensive treatments, the comments from friends and strangers alike. We pray that you will walk alongside all who are sick and in need of a miracle, whether that be found in a river or a new medical regiment. Like Naaman's wife and the servant girl, we also acknowledge that many of us know what it means to care for those in need. Strengthen and uphold all caregivers that they might assist people with patience, dignity, and love. God of the nations, on this Fourth of July weekend, we pray especially for our nation. 246 years ago, our national ancestors issued an unanimous declaration Today, it's hard to imagine offering a unanimous declaration about almost anything. So we pray for our leaders, that they might have wisdom, humility, and kindness towards one another. We pray that laws might be passed that promote dignity and kindness, rather than the mere preservation of power. As citizens, we pray for guidance and perseverance that together we might work to make our country a more just and loving place. Yet even amidst all this, we are thankful to live in this country. We celebrate those prophets and leaders who have led the push towards freedom for all people. May you bless our nation and may we faithfully steward those blessings. Beyond our land, we pray for the world. This week, we are especially mindful of Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. Gracious God, be with the members of this church who are currently traveling through these countries, lifting their voices in song to promote peace and unity in a land with a history of division and discord. Please keep all members of the group safe as they continue their pilgrimage this week and return home on Saturday. May they encounter you and the people they meet, the stories they hear and the history they traverse, and may they come back and tell us all about it. Merciful God, we offer this prayer using the words your Son, the Savior of the whole world, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this time, I invite you to find the friendship pad located on the inside end of your pew. Please take a moment to fill it out and pass it down your pew. When it reaches the end, please pass it back. This is one way we can learn who we're sitting with and make a new friend following worship. Friends, as we wait for the coming of God's good reign, we answer the invitation to take part in God's work. One way we respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. As you depart worship this morning, you are invited to place your offering in one of the plates that will be in the narthex, or as always, you can give at the church website. May our our tithes and offerings, our gifts of time, talent, and treasure be one measure of our participation in God's good work. Let us pray. Holy One, we give you thanks for your steadfast love and faithfulness. Bless these offerings and transform them into gifts of hospitality for those who need them most. Amen.
1: Friends, go out into the world in peace, and may the blessings of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest and abide with each of you, this day and even forevermore. Amen.